Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you by your Spirit, and we come to you in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, the one who laid down his perfect life, the one who is the sacrifice that satisfies the, the wrath of God for the punishment that all of us deserve for our sin. Lord God, we pray right now that as we open your word, God, that we would hear your voice, that you would speak clearly and powerfully, not merely to our ears and to our minds, God, but that you would speak to our hearts, that we would leave here a transform. We pray for your, uh, for your spirit to move in this place. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated and open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. If uh, you don't have a Bible, our ushers will be coming up, up and down the aisle in just a moment. And uh, these are Bibles that you can borrow just for the day. Or if you don't own a copy of the Bible, now you do. This is our uh, gift uh, to you. Thankful to be back at Harvest Bible Chapel this morning after taking a, a couple of weeks to uh, rest and enjoy some uh, time on vacation with my family. Really grateful for uh, Pastor Brad Morris from Eglise de Plateau in Montreal and for Kai Ballantyne up at Harvest Church in uh, Muskoka. And uh, thankful for these other uh, uh, pastors, these other churches that we have the opportunity to uh, serve alongside. Uh, in the Christmas season, we were working our way through uh, the Gospel of John's prologue, the first 18 verses, which is sort of Christmas from a, from a different angle, talking about the, the, the incredible reality that we celebrate at Christmas, but with, not with any shepherds or, or angels or anything like that. John takes a totally different uh, approach. And and so we, we did that at Christmas, and now as we head into 2019, we're going to be continuing on and studying very closely what has been recorded uh, by John in his gospel. So today we're going to be looking at John chapter, nine, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And, and we're going to be learning about, see, see John's gospel is, is different in just about every way. The way he talks about Christmas is different from, from Matthew and Luke. The way that he orders events, his attention to specific details or specific conversations are very, very different. But one thing he has in common with the authors of, of the other gospels is that at, right in the, the opening chapters we have this discussion of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is, is really one of those common denominators among all of the gospels. He shows up at the, at, the, at the beginning of each gospel. And the reason why John is so important is because he pointed people to Jesus. Jesus called John the Baptist, he called his cousin the greatest who ever lived. He called him the, the most important prom, uh, uh, prophet of all time. He was the last Old Testament pro prophet and really the first New Testament preacher because he was the one who was able to say, that, that is Jesus. That is the one who you should follow, who you should love, who you should serve, who you should worship. He had a special role to play. All of the other prophets, they, they predicted things about Jesus, they pointed towards him, but John could physically point his finger and say, that is the one, follow him, worship him, serve him. And really, ultimately, we are called upon to do what John the Baptist did. Our job as a church is to point people to Jesus. Our job as individuals is to point people to Jesus. As a church, we're not pointing people to a certain preacher. We're not pointing people to a particular program. No, we're, we want to point people 
to Jesus. That's our goal. That's our aim. We want to point this community to Jesus. But furthermore, we want to point one another to Jesus. Like Christian community is great, but, but the solution to our problems is not other Christians. It's not a, a pastor or a counselor. It's not your small group leader. Your small group leader will fail you if, if they do not point you to Jesus. Your pastor will fail you if they don't point you to Jesus. And this works its way into every area of our life. Think about parenting. What is our aim and our goal, our purpose in parenting? It's not simply to raise children with a sense of right and wrong and morality and ethics, as important as that is. No, we want to be able to point our children to Jesus. And in our, in our workplace and in our neighborhoods, in all of our relationships, our aim is to point people to Jesus. And so we're going to take a look at what John did in pointing people to Jesus, what, what the result was, and we're going to try to apply that uh, to our lives uh, today. So John uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, it says, This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You see, John was wanting to point people to Jesus. And, and today we're going to see three things that will happen if a person or if a ministry is committed to pointing people to Jesus, you can count on these things that will happen. Firstly, a ministry that points people to Jesus will, will confuse religious tradition. It will confuse religious tradition. Verse 19 says that, that the Jews had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to go and to talk to John. Now when it says uh, the Jews, it's not speaking about every single person of Jewish descent. That, that word is being used to describe the leaders of the Jewish people. Sometimes when we talk about foreign policy in the news, they say, you know, Canada is asking for, for Russia to be clear about their intentions in, in Ukraine. That doesn't mean that every single Canadian is, is, is asking uh, Vladimir Putin to, to clarify his intentions in that particular part. No, it's, it's saying that Canada, that, that our prime minister, that, that, that our diplomats are, are engaged in that kind of a discussion. So here, when it's talking about the Jews, it's because it's, some people get confused about the way the phrase the Jews is used in the, in the New Testament, and they think that the, that the New Testament is actually anti-Semitic, that it's, that it's against the Jewish people. Listen, Jesus is Jewish. John the Baptist was Jewish. All of the great Bible heroes are, are Jewish. The Bible is very far from being anti-Jewish. It's very pro-Jewish. And so, and so that term, we need to understand that that's representing the leaders, the Sanhedrin, which was this religious, political um, uh, leadership group, this group of elites. They sent the Levites and the priests. The priests were the ones who offered the sacrifices at the temple. The Levites were the security guards, the doorkeepers, the, the worship leaders. And so they, the Levites probably came along to make sure that the priests were being protected along the way, but they had these questions for John. They asked him, who are you? You see, they, they, they were confused because a lot of people were turning and listening to John, and he was drawing quite a big crowd, but the, 
the, the members of the religious tradition were thinking, well, when people used to want to know about God, they used to come to us. They used to go to Jerusalem. They used to go to the temple. And we used to give them the answers. But now they're going all the way out into the wilderness. They're going all the way out to the Jordan River. And they're, and they're talking to this mystery guy in a camel hair suit and, and a leather belt. And he's, he's eating locusts and honey. And so they, they want to know, who are you? Why are they listening to you? So they're confused. Now John knows the question behind the question. Because he doesn't just say, I'm John, nice to meet you. He says, I am not the Christ. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You see, according to their religious tradition, putting together, piecing together the different prophecies in the Old Testament, people were looking forward to this Christ that was going to come. And in Hebrew, it's, it's Messiah. And the, the word just means anointed. Now, there were three groups of people, three leaders in Old Testament Israel that were anointed, which means to be, to be covered in oil or in water. A priests were anointed, kings were anointed, and prophets were anointed. And according to the religious tradition, and looking at the prophecies in the Old Testament, that they were hoping and expecting in the arrival of this hybrid prophet-priest-king. But the religious tradition at the time really emphasized not so much prophet and priest, but more so the king. Because they were living under military occupation. The Roman soldiers were everywhere. If a Roman soldier said, hey, drop everything right now, carry my gear, and walk a mile with me, they were allowed to do that. They were not a people that were free. And they were longing for a Christ, an anointed king, who was going to come and form, a, form an army. And put the Romans down and establish a government. John the Baptist says, listen, I'm not out here forming an army. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the Christ. You have the wrong idea about Christ. I'm here to point you to the Christ. But he's not the kind of Christ that you are ho hoping in. Then they ask him a follow-up question. Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now that's a little random. I mean, Elijah hadn't walked on the earth for hundreds of years. It'd be like walking up to someone and saying, hey, are you Albert Einstein? The, guy, the, guy, the guy's been dead since 19, 1955. You know? Excuse me, are you Napoleon Bonaparte? It's, it's, it's such an odd, it's an odd question. But again, according to religious tradition, see, one of the things about Elijah is that Elijah technically didn't die. That sweet chariot swang low and, and picked Elijah up and took him up to heaven. And so there was this religious tradition that, that Elijah was going to come back. And listen, they didn't just make it up. It, I mean, they had a biblical reason for thinking that because Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, said this. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, he said, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So he says, God, this is God speaking, that he's going to come to the earth. But before he comes, he's going to send a messenger. And he says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is one of the last words written in Old Testament scripture. And so according to their religious tradition, they believed that actual Elijah was going to come back. He was taken up to heaven. They believed that he was going to come back to earth. And John says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not Elijah. Then they ask, are you the prophet 
Now, we talked earlier in John chapter 1 about the importance of understanding the definite article and the indefinite article. The definite is the, the indefinite is a. Notice they don't ask him, are you a prophet? No, they say, are you the prophet? You see, because long ago Moses had made this promise to the people that God had told Moses to tell the people. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. A prophet like Moses, someone who is going to speak the word of God and lead the people out of slavery. And he'll raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Now ultimately, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that this, this prophet that Moses promised, that actually was Jesus. But they're, all, they're trying to figure out, who are you? Are you, are you Elijah? Are you the, the prophet that, that Moses talked about and John again? In verse 21, and he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? They're like, listen, we gotta, we got to give a report. We've got to do a tang and it's empty. we got a PowerPoint presentation that has no slides in it right now. Who are you? We've got to report back. And see, this is a telltale sign of what happens in religious tradition. They're not particularly concerned about the truth. They're not particularly concerned about what John is actually trying to teach. All they want to do is fall in line with the hierarchy. All they want to do is to be able to re report back to the people that sent them. And, and religious tradition is rooted in the fear of man. It's not rooted in the fear of God. And that's what their concern is. Now maybe you're here today and you're a little bit confused. Uh, someone invited you to church or someone that you're close to has started following Jesus and you're noticing a, a difference in them. And they've been trying to talk to you about, about Jesus and you're, look, you're, you're sitting here at church, you're, you're looking at the way people are dressed, you're looking at the way people are singing, you're listening to the, to the way that God's word is being taught and you're just a little bit confused because based on your upbringing, this isn't, this isn't what fearing God or religion was actually about. Maybe you were brought up in a Sikh home and, and you were taught that, that, that the way to, to honor God or, or the divine worked in, in this particular way. Maybe you, were, you grew up in a, in a Muslim home and you were taught certain things about, about God and, and truth and his word. Maybe you grew up in a Roman Catholic home and you've got why is everything so informal? And, and, and where's, the, where's the pomp and circumstance and the, and the ceremony? And you're a little bit confused. Now, if you're a little bit confused, that's okay. I mean, that, that's why we're here. We want to point people to Jesus. And when, just like John the Baptist, when a ministry is truly pointing people to Jesus, it's going to cause people to kind of question well, this isn't how I was brought up. This isn't what I was about. And when God is truly moving and when God is truly at work, all of those categories, all of those unimportant things that we elevate and think are important get cast along to the side and it becomes about the truth. So what are we supposed to do in that situation? Maybe you have started following Jesus and you're getting pressure, getting all kinds of questions from people who come from another a tradition. Well, we do what John did. John went right to the word. He says, you want to know who I am? He, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 23. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
the way to cut through all of religious tradition and different people's opinion, listen, is to go right to the word of God. John didn't say, well, you have your opinion, now I'm going to share my opinion. No, John says, if you want to make sense of what's happening here, you need to go to the Word of God. If you want to make sense of what's happening at Harvest Bible Chapel and why all these people are coming and, and, and how God is, if you want to make sense of that, the only way to make sense of it is by looking at the Word of God. And it, our ultimate authority is not religious tradition. Our ultimate authority is the Word of God. And John points them to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Now, Isaiah is a really amazing book of the Bible. And it get, makes many predictions, accurate predictions about things that were going to happen in the political world. It also made some incredible predictions about Jesus 700 years before he ever walked the earth. But in chapter 39 of the book of Isaiah, God shared some bad news. That because of the people's sin and rebellion, they were going to be exiled. They were going to be carried away to a, a far off land called Babylon. But then in chapter 40, as soon as God shares the bad news, and I, as the next chapter, he starts unfolding the good news. And he says, there's going to be this voice in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And it talks about making the, the mountains flat and filling in the valleys and basically creating a highway so that people can go on the way of the Lord, so that people can leave exile and come back to the promised land. And that promise, that prophecy was fulfilled. The, I mean, the people were there. They're back there in Jerusalem. God came through in his promise, but that, that promise, that prophecy went on a deeper level. You see, they had physically returned from exile to the promised land, but they hadn't spiritually returned from exile in their relationship with God. And John says, listen, this is more than just about where our postal code is. This is about how we relate to God Almighty. And he says, I am, I am a voice in the wilderness saying, get ready because God is coming. And we need to make sure that we are ready. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. But the people were still confused. Verse 24 says that now they had been sent from uh, the Pharisees. That, that was just a, another member of that elite group of Jewish leaders in uh, Jerusalem. Verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? The, the religious tradition, they're, they're confused. They're confused about what John is doing. See, he, here's, the, here's the really interesting thing. John had just told them, prepare the way of the Lord. He had just told them, hey, heads up, God is coming. Get ready. And rather than talking about God, they still want to talk about John. And religious tradition always just wants to talk about people and processes and practices. So they said, okay, whatever about God. Let, let's talk about you, John, and let's talk about, about baptism. You see, because they were really thrown off by baptism. Because baptism was part of their religious tradition. There's no baptisms in the Old Testament. It was something that was added on. You see, because if someone who was not Jewish wanted to become Jewish, you know, the, the males were circumcised, and then the males along with the, with the, with the children and, and the women, they were baptized as a sign of them sort of being cleansed of, of whatever background they had before and becoming new and fresh 
as a follower of the Jewish religion. Not, not becoming ethnically Jewish, but culturally and religiously Jewish. You see, God established the, the, the nation of Israel, the, the Jewish people, through Abraham. And he promised to bless Abraham. And Abraham's descendants were his chosen people, but he blessed them in order to be a blessing. He blessed Abraham so that all the nations of the world would be, would be blessed. But somewhere along the lines, the, the, the people, the Jewish people focused too much on the idea of we're the chosen people and that we are blessed, and they lost track of the fact that they were supposed to be a blessing of other nations. And so baptism was created as this way of sort of just making it clear that you're not as good as us. If you want to become like us, you're going to have to clean yourself up. You're going to have to baptize yourself. But the remarkable thing and the thing that had the religious traditionalists so confused was that John was baptizing Jewish people. He was treating the insiders like they were outsiders. And so that's why they asked the question, why are, you, why are you baptizing? You see, because ultimately, if you want to expose the most deadly error of religious tradition, and this can be religious tradition within Christianity, it can be within another religion, it can be within atheism, the most dangerous error is the error that there are good people and there are bad people. And that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And what was so shocking about what, was, what John was doing and what will be so shocking if you continue to, to get involved at Harvest Bible Chapel and really start to look at what Jesus taught is that the message of the Bible is that there aren't good people at all. We are all bad people. There are no insiders. We all need to be cleansed of our filth and our sin. We all are in desperate need of the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. And so that's why they were so thrown. They were thrown off by this, this baptism that John was, was insisting on the people participating in. Verse 26, John answered them. He speaks to them on their terms. Okay, yeah, I baptize with water. But notice where he goes. He says, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John says, yeah, okay, you want to know about baptism? Yes, I do baptize. Okay, but you missed the point of what I just said. I said that I came to prepare the way of the Lord. And he says, listen, I, I want to lay out the urgency of the situation. I'm not preparing the way of the Lord that he's like coming years from now. I'm not preparing the way of the Lord that, you know, he might be here in a couple of months. No, look what he says. He is standing among you. He's saying, get your eyes off of the religious practices or, or your ceremonies and listen to what I'm saying. I am here to get you ready to meet God. I am here to point you to God. He is, he's standing among you right now. And he, he puts himself in proper a perspective as he relates to the one who he came to point to. Verse 27, he says, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So a ministry that points to Jesus will for sure confuse religious tradition. But as we look at what John is saying here, we're also going to see that a ministry that points to Jesus will 
refuse self-promotion. It will refuse self-promotion. John wasn't chasing after likes or friends on social media. He wasn't trying to draw this crowd to get their attention on him. No, he came for the purpose of pointing. Pointing people not to him, pointing people uh, to Jesus Christ. You see, they missed the whole point. They went back and asked a question about baptism, which I was like, oh my goodness. He's standing among you, right? I'm here to prepare you. You're not prepared. He's, he's here now. And I am not worthy to untie a strap of his sandal. That is something that only a slave would do for their master. John said, John said, if I could be considered a slave of Jesus Christ, that would be the greatest privilege of my entire existence. He says, I am not worthy to untie his sandal. He puts himself in this posture of humility. You see, if you trace back even what we've covered so far, John said he wasn't Elijah because he didn't want to make it about him. John wasn't actually Elijah, physically Elijah. But John could have said, well, you know, when the angel Gabriel came and made the announcement to my dad... He did say that I would come in the spirit and the power. No, but John, John didn't want any, he didn't want the attention on him. I mean, Jesus later clarified in Matthew 11 that John was the ultimate fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, that he was that, that Elijah-like messenger that was going to come. But John wanted to put himself in a place of humility. I love even the verse that he chose from Isaiah in verse 23. He's, he says, I'm a voice. This isn't about me. He says, I don't want you to focus on the messenger. I just want you to focus on the message. Loved ones, we are setting ourselves up for a world of hurt and disappointment in our podcast and celebrity Christian world. To focus on the messenger. To elevate the messenger. And it's sometimes partially the messenger's fault. Sometimes it's partially our fault. There's sin on both sides. But the emphasis can't be on the messenger. The emphasis must be on the message. Sean says, I'm just a voice. Just hear what I'm saying. He didn't want the focus on him. Focusing on ourselves and our own self-promotion and self-preservation is really the main thing that hinders us from pointing other people to Jesus. I mean, that's what people need so badly, is to know about who Jesus is and why he came and how much he loves us and how he died and how he rose again and has given us the gift of eternal life. But, but self-promotion and self-preservation and self-exaltation gets in the way. I mean, the number one reason why we don't share our, share our faith is because we're, we're afraid that people won't like us if we do. Religion is a controversial topic these days. We don't want to come across as being holier than thou or judgmental. And, and there's a lot of pressure 
to conform to the ways of our world. And so in the name of self-promotion, in the names of other people liking us and accepting us, we can keep our mouth shut because we're focused on promoting ourselves rather than pointing to Jesus. There's another way, though, that the self-promotion thing works out. I, I don't know if I made this up myself or if someone taught it to me when I was younger. Either way, it's just super messed up. Have you ever been taught this? Go into your school, go into your workplace, go into your neighborhood, be a good person, make a difference. People will notice and ask you questions. And then when they ask you questions, then you can point them to Jesus. Am I the only one that ever thought that or was taught that? Is that I think all of us have heard some version of, of that kind of teaching. This is how we point people to Jesus. Well, listen. Listen, I, I lived by that for a lot of years. And no one asked me questions, probably because I wasn't a very good at being a good person. <laughs> that, that's just a backward way. John didn't go out there and into the wilderness and try to be a good person. He went out there and tried to point people to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. See, self-promotion can cause us to keep our mouth shut. It can cause us to do this weird game of charades, you know, like first word, like, and then we're supposed to do these good deeds, and then all of a sudden someone's be like, oh my goodness, God loves me, and died on the, Jesus died on the cross for me. And you're like, yeah, that's it. No, that's, that's not how it works. And then the third way is that when we do open our mouths, sometimes self-promotion can still creep in, can't it? It can become about us and our ability to use apologetics or reason or, 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 or to argue or persuade someone into becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, all of that is self-promotion. We need to be careful about all of these things. Our goal, like John's goal, is to point people to Jesus. Loved ones, it can't be about us. We are representing Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must be humble. The self-promotion among Christians is, is completely incongruent with what Jesus is all about. John talked about unstrapping a sandal. Guys, Jesus didn't just unstrap sandals. He got a bucket of water and a towel and knelt down and, and washed his disciples' feet. I mean, this is the one that we're representing. We can't allow pride to sneak its way in. We are called to promote him, and it must be done in a way that is humble, in a way that, that does not point people towards us, but that points people toward him. And if we're going to be a ministry that does that, we'll confuse religious tradition and we'll refuse self-promotion. And then thirdly, we will pursue Christ's exaltation. We will pursue Christ's exaltation. Verse 28 just kind of puts a geographical marker on where and when all of this was happening. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan when John was was baptizing. We don't know where Bethany was. We know for sure it wasn't the Bethany where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived because they didn't live near the Jordan. So it, it's, it's another Bethany. Then verse 29 puts a, uh, 
puts a chronological marker. It says the next day. So he told them, hey, walking among you right now is God himself. God in the flesh. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, here's the really interesting thing. The religious leaders, they wanted to know, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? None of them asked, are you the lamb? They weren't looking. They weren't looking for the lamb. They weren't looking for the thing that they needed the most. You see, when we look at our world today, some people would say that our greatest need is is political. Listen, God did not send a politician Some would say that our our greatest need is is environmental sustainability. God did not not send an environmentalist. Some people would say, well, the the ails of our society are because of a lack of education. God did not send a teacher. He sent a lamb. A lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. Our greatest need is the lamb because our greatest problem is our sin. And John exalts Jesus as the Lamb of God who is going to deal once and for all with our worst and most horrible problem. Our own sinful, selfish desires. And this this statement, behold the Lamb of God, this is an answer to, to a question that had been asked time and time again in the Old Testament. And the religious tradition, they they knew the Bible inside and outside, but they missed that they needed a lamb. Let, let Let me show you. Turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. I read this in my devotions this week. I've got to be honest with you. If there's a passage of Scripture that I have more trouble with, that 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 really causes my, my heart to, to think about some difficult things that really presses in on me, it's Genesis chapter 22. Because in Genesis chapter 22, God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable. Abraham is over 100 years old. He and his wife, Sarah, have had a, a miracle baby, geriatric pregnancy. I mean, they're old enough to be great-grandparents, and now they, they've got a, a little baby boy. They named him Laughter. Because he brought them so much joy. And God asked Abraham to go up a mountain and to sacrifice his son. And as they're making their way there, just picture the scene. Isaac knows nothing about what Abraham has been commanded or told. Abraham is just the the gut-wrenching feelings in that that moment as Abraham is walking up the mountain. Then Isaac innocently says, verse 7, Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire, the wood. He says, but where is the lamb? Abraham knows what he's supposed to do. In verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. 
And if you, if you read that story, you, you, you know that God does. He, he provides a ram for the sacrifice. God does not have Abraham follow through on what, what would be impossible for a father to do. But the question, and where, where is the lamb? That, that question echoes throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And that promise that Abraham makes, the Lord will provide. And it was. It was answered within that day. God provided. But, the, but that, that statement, that promise, that confidence that God will provide, that works its way all throughout the Old Testament as well. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 and find verse 3. The people are in Israel the, and God is setting them free. Sorry, the people are in Egypt and God is setting them free from slavery by means of all of these plagues. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And then the last and final plague is that God was going to send an, an angel of death all throughout the land of Egypt and strike down all of the firstborn son. Again, in the context of the death of a son. Abraham and Isaac, the, 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 the idea was that a son needed to die. And now in Egypt, you have the, the death of a, of a son looming over the whole land of Egypt. But God says he, in, in Exodus 12, 3, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Skip down to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they took some of that blood and they spread it over the door of their homes. And when when the angel of death passed through and saw the blood, saw that the lamb had been provided as a substitute, as a sacrifice, he passed over the homes of the people of Israel in that moment. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 29. God rescued the people out of Egypt, not just to set them free, but because he wanted to live among them. So he had them build this, this tabernacle, this, this tent, which was this, the symbolic presence of God in the midst of the people. And in Exodus chapter 29, verse 38, it talks about the offerings that were supposed to be made at the tabernacle. It says, and this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So in order for the tabernacle to function, in order for God to dwell among his people, a lamb had to be slaughtered in the morning and at night. Why? Because it was a picture of how people, sinful people entering into the presence of a holy God equals death. And so these lambs were dying instead of the people. We don't have a time right now to talk about Leviticus chapter 4. But in Leviticus chapter 4, the, the people were to bring a lamb. When they knew they had sinned, they themselves individually were to bring a lamb to, to, to sacrifice as a substitute to die in their place. Now turn with me to the book of Isaiah, the book that John the Baptist quoted. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And in, in the first chapter of Isaiah, we see this this sad instance in which the people of Israel 
had allowed the, the, the tabernacle sacrificial system and the temple sacrificial system to, to no longer cause them to stand in awe and wonder at the holiness of God. It just became part of religious tradition for them. And even though day after day, in the morning and in the evening, a lamb would be killed on their behalf, even though whenever they sinned, they would bring a lamb to the temple that meant nothing to them. So you get to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. God says, you know what? This, you guys have totally missed the point here. So the question is, well, where, Isaac's question is, is still looming large. Where is the lamb? You go to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. And God makes this promise about his About his servant, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Look at chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Notice this. Like a lamb. He was led to the slaughter like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul made an offering, a sacrifice for guilt or for our, for our sin. Isaiah points forward, gets more clarity that a servant is coming. And he is going to make that sacrifice. He is going to be that lamb. Then we come now to John chapter 1, verse 29, where John says, Behold the lamb. And he's pointing to him and he's saying, This is the one going all the way back to Abraham and Isaac, all the way to the Passover lamb and all of the lambs of the tabernacle and the, the promise, the prophecy. Of Isaiah 53, this is Kim. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. He's not saying that he didn't know who Jesus was. He was Jesus' relative, but he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Lamb. He says, I did not know him. He says, I understand that you don't know him. That's why I'm here. I didn't know him at first. God told me, and God told me to tell you. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness talking about when he baptized Jesus. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. It makes that clear again. I didn't figure this out on my own. God showed it to me. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He came to take away the sin of the world by being the Lamb of God who took away the punishment that all of us deserve for our sin. He's also coming to baptize us in the Holy Spirit to take away the power that sin has over our lives. And then one day he will return, not just as the lamb, but as the lion, to take away the presence of sin. And then John says in verse 34, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Lamb of God is the Son of God. Remember where the original question came from, where is the lamb? That happened in the gut-wrenching moments of Abraham contemplating what it would be for him to sacrifice his son. The very thing that God did not have Abraham follow through on because it was so unthinkable the idea of, of a, a father showing his love for God by sacrificing his son was so unthinkable. Abraham didn't follow through on it. And God didn't make him follow through on it. But the very thing that God told Abraham he didn't have to do, God himself did for us. That he is the father who sacrificed his son. That the lamb of God is in fact the son of God. So that when you come to the book of Revelation in chapter 5, there's worship in heaven. And there's a lamb standing in the throne as though he is slain. And the people erupt in worship and say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You're the lamb of God who took away the sin of of the world. And then it goes on in Revelation 5:12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, the lamb of God who is the son of God, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. John was all about the exaltation of the Son. We, if we are going to point people to Jesus, we must be all about the exaltation of the Son. That is what our church needs to be about, loved ones. That's what our lives need to be about. Frankly, that's what this whole universe is about. That's where we're headed. Revelation 5, where all of creation will say, Worthy is the lamb that was slain, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to think very soberly right now in these moments. God, I pray that you would forgive us for the times where we are trite or trivialize the sacrifice that was made for us. God, the cost of paying for our sin, every sin, and we so often wrongly categorize and characterize our sins into big sins and little sins, Lord. Each and every sin, even if it was one sin, is enough to cast us all into hell. 
small or great, however we would categorize it. But Christ came as a lamb to be slain, to be slaughtered for us. And so God, we we confess to you our sin in this moment. We ask for your forgiveness. We thank you that we can boldly come before your throne because Christ was sacrificed for us. That the wrath that was looming over our heads has been satisfied. It's been propitiated. God, I pray that you would meet with us in a powerful way as we contemplate who the Lamb is and what the Lamb has done for us. God, I I pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we share in the Lord's Supper, that you would indeed commune with us, that you would be present here with us, and that we would say from the bottom of our hearts, worthy is the Lamb. And may we live lives that point to him. It's in his name that we pray.